welcome to the 26th episode of Heavier Than I Look. This is the first episode of Season 3. And as a reminder, this podcast is dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is devoted to all of those who are currently fighting the tediousness of recovery. They've done the invasive, intense, and difficult work of physical, psychological, and emotional change, yet now are in the long haul. They are back to the real world of triggering food, ever-present diet culture, and continued fear of weight change. They are fighting a battle alone at the edges of recovery, yet might not consider themselves fully recovered. To all of those who are almost there, taking three steps forward and one step back every day. You will make it. I want season three to be a season in response to specific needs of the world around me. I want it to be less formulaic, more call and response. If there's an episode coverage that you want, or more importantly that you need, please ask. I'm going to do my best to fulfill every need dictated by either friend or stranger. This space is as much yours as it is mine. Today's episode does just that, exploring a topic that I've noticed is a common concern among those surrounding me. HTIL has already covered intuitive eating with Elise Retch in episode 11, so if you're looking for more information on that specific paradigm, please feel free to listen to that episode. Today I will discuss how to honor hunger cues and fullness cues. And this episode features more of a mindfulness breakdown. It may be particularly triggering as it discusses in-depth behaviors during mealtime that may distract from or inhibit or aid communication with your body. If you feel that discussion of this topic may be harmful, please do not listen. My aim is not to demonize certain behaviors and glorify others, but offer an an alternative approach for a safe mealtime. Earlier on in recovery, hunger and satiety cues need to be found through an appropriate meal plan, so you would want to look for expert guidance there. This meal plan should be administered and guided by a nutritionist or registered dietitian or physician, and self-regulation of intake is kind of a later hurdle in the life of a survivor. So if you're not at that point yet, don't worry. You can return to this episode when you're ready. Once hunger cues start to come back, I might recommend tracking them loosely. You don't want this tracking to become triggering, as tracking may have been during calorie or exercise counting, So you have to do this in a recovery-centric framework. How hungry am I at this time of day versus this time? How does this pattern change based on how stressed or at peace I am? What is my favorite meal of the day? When do I feel the strongest cravings? And how does this change day by day? What does this type of meal do for my hunger? What does this type of snack do for my hunger? Am I completely satiated afterwards? 
try and figure out why you're eating if you are not hungry. Identify what purpose eating a certain meal or type of food serves. And track how your body feels 20 minutes after stopping eating. You've given your body time to digest. Are you still hungry? Or, alternatively, are you full and replenished? If food is how you've chosen and how you choose to cope, know that that is okay. Let it be okay. Coping is inherently good because it means you are persevering. You are surviving despite less than ideal circumstances. Physical and emotional detachment when around food may be a necessity. So take time for yourself to detach, to not be hyper-aware of your body's hunger and fullness cues. This takes a lot of patience, awareness, and time. If you don't have such resources available to you right now, don't rush it. I spent many, many months, even years, purposefully detached. It prevented an early re-traumatization during mealtime, which was the best thing I could have done to protect myself. This detachment means eating without thinking about eating. To engage in eating without having to engage in mindfulness takes a certain level of internal strength that's not accessible to everyone at every time. Mindfulness does require a certain strength of awareness. And earlier on in recovery, this might not be realistic. So consider that during this episode as well. Pre-meal, you might consider checking in with yourself. How hungry do you feel? How full do you feel? What are you craving? Knowing that cravings should always be honored. What is your ideal meal right now? How can you preserve your body's comfort while also nourishing it? Pay attention to hunger cues such as an empty or growling stomach, a headache, a lightheaded feeling, grumpiness, energy deficit, shakiness, or physical weakness. Also pay attention to the severity of each of these. The more severe, the more urgent the need to eat. The EMILY program has published a hunger and fullness scale between negative 5 and 5. They describe each of the numbers as following. 5. Uncomfortable. Painfully full. 4. Quite full, some discomfort, a few bites past satisfaction, food seems less delicious. 3. Satisfied, comfortable, full, good time to stop eating. 2. Currently eating, enjoying food, but not yet satisfied, close to finishing. 1. Starting to eat and need to keep eating. 0. Not hungry, not full, neutral. So in between meals and snacks. Negative one. Starting to get hungry. You can wait for the desire to develop more fully or have a snack. Negative two. Hungry and the urge to eat food is strong. Body is sending signals to eat. Your stomach is growling. Negative three. Preoccupied with hunger. Stronger physical signals. Negative four. Very hungry or famished, too hungry and will eat anything when or want to eat anything. And then negative five, 
starving and weak with hunger. You may not feel anything, but you have a headache, irritability, lightheadedness, physical weakness. It is important to reacquaint yourself post-disordered eating to what hunger feels like and how your body might communicate that to you. Don't sit in this hunger. Listen to your body. Hunger and fullness cues need intensive recalibration post-eating disorder, so give your whole body time to heal, which includes the brain, the stomach, and the digestive system. Mindfulness during the meal will likely be the most challenging part. Distractions are imminent and triggers come to a front. So take your time with it. Slow it down. This is especially helpful for me because I typically try to speed up or distract myself from a fear-based meal to get it over with, to speed up the re-traumatization process as fast as possible. To avoid and repress the triggering emotions or feelings. This was an especially challenging obstacle because most of my hunger and fullness cues were complicated with the existence of my IBS. Things I recommend. Number one, desensitize yourself to the feeling of your skin expanding, your belly bloating, as it is a natural biological process of digestion. You might consider planting your palms on your stomach to prioritize the sense of touch and regulating your eating. What you're feeling exclusively dictates how much or what you eat. This desensitization process for me helped to humanize and honor parts of myself that felt or still feel particularly triggering. You name it, you bring love to it, you care for it as if another person with complicated needs and desires. For example, I've named my stomach and concurrent gastrointestinal disorder IBI, I-B-B-Y, which is short for IBS. And this helps me continue to establish a communication system with my body and this part of my body that feels particularly triggering considering the symptoms of the IBS. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a psychiatrist famous for his research and experience in the treatment of trauma, writes, quote, Mindfulness puts us in touch with the transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. When we pay focused attention to our bodily sensations, we can recognize the ebb and flow of our emotions, and with that, increase our control over them, end quote. Now, talk of control can also be triggering considering most eating disorders are based and serve the purpose of establishing control. However, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is kind of talking more about how we exist above the emotions as they're happening to us, as if the emotions are little clouds passing in, this in the sky and instead of being absorbed within the cloud and being affected severely by that emotion, we instead exist just above them and curiously watch them pass by below us. It might be helpful to even speak these emotions out as you are having them, especially if you have a trusted member of your support system during mealtime. Voice how you are feeling. Disarm the thoughts. Disempower them. Do not let them dictate the enjoyment of your meal. 
When we use our voices, the silence thoughts in our head are less poisonous. They lose a bit of their power. Those clouds disappear. Do as much as all of these exercises up until and before the moment that they feel triggering. If they do feel triggering, do not practice them. This approach is meant to rise above the triggers, not succumb to them. Number one, chew deliberately and chew many times. This helps with digestion before swallowing. Number two, take smaller bites or take one bite at a time. I have a tendency to grab a handful of something, which speeds up the eating process too fast for me to properly understand my body's hunger and fullness cues. Grabbing a handful of things is not a bad behavior at all, but it might need a second thought if it causes you to repress triggers and stray from mindfulness. Number three, stop midway through your meal and do a hunger check. So put your food down between bites and give yourself the time and space to have a conversation with yourself. Are you satiated? Are you still hungry? Where might you exist on that scale of fullness to hunger? How many more bites might it take for you to feel full and satisfied? What is a comfortable level of fullness? What is overboard? What is not enough? So again, consider using these hunger and fullness skills that can be found pretty much anywhere online to quantify and measure your continued state or changes in state. While also keeping in mind the prioritization of feelings of comfort within fullness. And know that this takes a lot of trial and error, especially if you're trying to teach your body to have trust in your food and amount choices. You're literally rewiring your brain and establishing a secure connection with your body, so it's going to take time. So please try and be patient with yourself. Number four, listen and follow cravings 100% of the time. If you ignore a craving, it will come back 10 times stronger in the future. Trust me. Again, your body needs to know it can trust you to serve it what it wants and needs when it wants and needs it. Number five, if it would be helpful, minimize other distractions. Eat with the trusted member of your support system or eat alone. Turn your phone face down on the table. The food in this challenging process deserve all of your attention. You want to focus on the internal satiety cues, not the external. So for example, an empty plate does not mean that you are full. Your body will communicate that to you instead. Number six. Because you are trying to teach your body self-trust and respect, predictable eating patterns may be beneficial. For example, eat in the same spot as much as you can, have a designated spot that feels safe to eat in where you won't be bombarded with toxic messages that might get in the way of your mindfulness. Consider eating with these same utensils and the same plate. Maybe even consider eating the same thing. If that does not feel triggering, and also if those are what your cravings are. Number seven. 
As in all mindfulness, take slow and deep breaths during this whole process. Remind yourself that this moment is you fully committing to what you live in. Remind yourself that this exercise is an empowered you, healing what may not be able to heal itself. And remind yourself that this is you protecting and preserving the longest relationship you will ever have, which is your relationship to your body. This whole practice is rooted in mindfulness, as it is scientifically proven to be instrumental in the healing process of one recovering from trauma. Dr. Vander Koch writes, quote, Because the amygdala processes the information it receives from the thalamus faster than the frontal lobes do, it decides whether incoming information is a threat to our survival even before we are consciously aware of the danger. Being able to hover calmly and objectively over our thoughts, feelings, and emotions and then take our time to respond allows the executive brain to inhibit, organize, and modulate the hardwired automatic reactions pre-programmed into the emotional brain, end quote. By slowing everything down, you are giving your brain the time it needs to hover calmly and objectively over the trigger. Timing is everything. It is also providential, but more on faith later. Know that this process will not always work. If you find that you overate or underate, don't throw it away completely. It is cyclical, repetitive, and eventually it will become second nature. Soon enough, your hunger cues and fullness cues will normalize and mindful eating may not be needed anymore. Use it at your discretion and that of a trusted support system. Every new meal is a new opportunity to practice this skill, to practice this skill, to strengthen this muscle. Know that overeating and undereating may also be circumstantial. Approach the situation with curiosity and gentleness. Contextualize it. Were you stressed, distracted, unaware, anxious, tired, ill? Stress has the ability to both suppress and increase appetite, which may have distorted cues. The body might divert resources away from food and digestion to prioritize other systems, which makes internal cues absent or unreliable. The usefulness of such cues cues is ability and circumstance dependent. It is not your fault if your cues are not clear nor loud enough to hear. So do not feel like a failure. Do not self-punish. And do not be defeated. A really hard realization that I had to come to is that eating past fullness can be a good thing, especially if it is your coping mechanism and especially if you are recovering from an eating disorder. Some days we may have the strength to be mindful and some days we may not. Again, do this as feels necessary and accessible to you. These are not hard and fast rules to follow and shouldn't be the impetus for self-punishment. These are just tools to slow down and pay attention to the re-traumatization of mealtime, identifying triggers to exist above them. If you would like to learn more about what sources I used in the discussion of hunger cues and fullness, my citations will be placed in the show notes.
all new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own eating disorder story, you can listen on any of these platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could, could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTIL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. By giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative, numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.